0: Hey everybody, it is episode 75 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris piping to you from Austin, Texas. Steve is here with me in studio. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing amazing. Well, welcome to the show, everybody. We're super excited to have a special guest today. We've got Greg McMillan on the show for an interview, doing a little coach's talk with Greg (laughs) And he'll be giving us a lowdown on everything from his core training principles to the McMillan running, the famous McMillan running
1: calculator. Yeah, Greg's been a friend of mine for goodness, 15 plus years, been both a friend and a mentor and a lot of other things in between. And anybody that doesn't know McMillan running, what rock have you been sleeping under? <laughs> um, especially if you listen to this podcast, because we only reference his calculator about a 50 million times in nearly every episode, but not only is it. A pretty amazing tool but he's an amazing guy who has had a lot of experience working with all levels from olympians all the way to beginners and um i think we had a really really, really good conversation chris mostly this conversation just continues to reiterate over and over and over again the the gospel of mm-hmm. what we would call the gospel of rogue but you know it's probably just sound training principles right <laughs> exactly so we will get and magic and him. magic
0: well which is interesting greg's a scientist by by training his master's in exercise physiology came to the coaching world from that perspective but has definitely evolved his thinking i don't think he used the word magic in our conversation but but as clearly knows that there's a place for that in in training so Really interesting conversation with Greg, which we will get to in a second. As we always do, we've got some intro topics to cover. The first one is from a couple of weeks ago that we just didn't get to last week. We had the U.S. Road Half Marathon Championships in Pittsburgh on May 6th. Olafine Tilliamuk got the win to continue what has been pretty good dominance from her on the road in a lot of these road races. She certainly won the series a couple years ago. She's won
1: this race. This was her third win in a row, I think. the
0: U.S. half several times. So is, you know, has has had big success here, this time at a new venue with the race in Pittsburgh. Chris Derrick won on the men's side, which is a good, a big win for him and good to see. But we also had Gwen Jorgensen in the field. For her half marathon under the tutelage of Jerry Schumacher. And this was a big fitness test in her journey to the Marathon Olympic team in 2020. So we're going to break it all down and we'll start on the women's side. Because we've got to talk about Alphine as well as Gwen, of course. And then Sarah Hall was in the mix here. So the podium was Alphine first. Sarah Hall coming back from an SI joint injury only three seconds back, though they, they were in 11004 and 11007, respectively. Rochelle Canuho, finished in 11049. I honestly don't know Rochelle as well, so you might be able to add context there. And then Gwen Jorgensen ended up fourth, nearly a minute back of Alfine in. This isn't her half marathon debut, but her first half marathon under Schumacher's training. She finished in one ten fifty eight on a relatively challenging Pittsburgh course. How do you break this one down? Althea took it out hard, put the pressure on everybody from the beginning, which she likes to do. What do you make of this race, Steve?
1: You know, I I think basically the coolest thing about this race, or the 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 the, the, the biggest takeaway was watch out for Sarah Hall, man. I, I don't know what else to say. I mean Alphine is a stud and and she seems to be a pretty much a specialist 25K to half marathon that, you know, basically somewhere between, you know, twelve miles and fifteen miles, she just seems to be nigh on and unstoppable, but Sarah Hall was broken a couple of months ago, Chris. Broken. We didn't know when we would see her again, and we kind of just quit talking about her. And she roars back with a performance here that's just out of this world. I think Sarah Hall could have one of the best mental games of all the American distance runners we have, male or female. I mean, she just always seems to be able to perform at an incredibly high level for where she currently is. And it's like... Maybe that faith thing, Chris. Maybe it's that, huh. that, 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 that worldview that just allows her to pour out something. I mean, she closed on Alphine. That race was much longer. It would have been over. I mean, I think Sarah would have definitely caught her. It was, I was just impressed mostly by Sarah Hall. And, um, but I will also say this, Chris. I was not unimpressed um, by Jorgensen. I thought Gwen... You know, Jer- Jerry told her there was a reason why he didn't want to run in a half marathon, right? And why he wanted to run in a road 10K. He was like, she's not, she's not there yet. She's got a ways to go. And that's okay. The kind of attitude and approach that she has is going to put her in good stead once that fitness starts to play out. But you can't fake it um, at this level. And the way that American distance runners, especially on the women's side, are running right now, you're going to get your ass handed to you if you're not president correct, ready to go. And obviously Gwen was not, um, and that's okay. She'll be where she needs to be. Um, you mentioned Rochelle Kahula. I, I do know exactly who she is. She, ran at, she went to Northern Arizona University and was um, a, a less than – she was an All-American, I believe, but she always sort of was an underperformer there, and she ran with the NAZ Elite for a long time. She was recently either – she was either dropped from NAZ Elite or she left. I'm not sure what the story is there. But she's running on, she's running a lot better now. She's getting, you know, she ran to 1525, Chris. So it's not like you You probably should have heard of her at some point in time. She's yeah. definitely got that ability. I remember when I was trying to get Mia Bain, we were trying to make this jump from I'm an athlete I coached at the University of Texas, and she ran in our post-collegiate group. I was trying to get her to, uh, She. they made a big jump in the qualifying standards for the 5K that year, Chris. It went from like 1550 to 1525 and I remember Mia just going throwing a fit and saying I can't believe this is happening I said yeah but guess what those who accept it will run the same number of women will run 1525 as ran 1550 last year mark my words and they did and Rochelle was one of those one of those people who did so she's she's somebody else we need to keep an eye on Uh, again I'm not sure what she's going to be able to do at a marathon distance but she is intriguing from that 10k and up space so um you know, American distance running as deep... American women's distance running especially is deep, deep, deep. Three things for me. One,
0: Tulia Tulliamuk now trains within AZ Elite and the Ben Rosario crew
1: there, which is a huge get for them. Formerly, formerly when Greg McMillan was coaching that group before he retired from That's right. so, post-collegiate coaching. Yeah,
0: w- yeah, when you go way back, Greg was Ben's coach. And so... That group just keeps getting talent. You know, they've already got talent there, but to have Tully Muck in the fold there is a huge get for them. And, you know, every time I hear Ben Rosario answer questions from a coaching standpoint, I'm just more and more impressed. He's somebody who seems to, to, to have it the right way. And clearly he's been trained, trained and mentored by people like Greg and others. But he also clearly has his own perspective, his own... Secret sauce, his own formula, and his, and you know, as a coach, I think it's important to have your own identity. You know, it's like you can't just copy what you've seen from others do. You've got to have you bring your own identity, your own spin, your own twist, and he has that. And I'm excited to see what happens with that group, especially as they're able to continue to attract more talent. So, pats off to Muck, Ben her coach. Let's
1: hope Hoka continues to support that club in the way that it needs to, and to try to get that first-tier and second-tier athlete, you're probably not going to pull in the talent that goes to NOP right off the bat or to uh, the Bowerman group, but maybe they will be able to, and let's just hope NAZ Elite and Hoka are able to get the kind of athletes that need to be there so that they can they can keep raising the bar. And Tulia Muck,
0: you mentioned her success at the half and 25K distance. She has not had success at the marathon distance, although she's tried. and. I hope, but she is someone who has the talent to compete for a spot on the team if she can put those pieces together. So I think it's interesting to see if Ben can help her do that because if he can help her figure out the marathon distance, I don't want to overstate her chance of making the team, but she would be one of those to be in the second tier who could, on the right
1: day, surprise somebody and slip onto a podium at the trials. I'm in a complete agreement. She races like a jack wagon. I mean, it's just off the front, go hard all the time, no matter what, which, as you and I know, is a, is a recipe for disaster in a marathon. I mean, sometimes you do have to make those big moves, but you typically want to see them happening after, you know, w- within 10 miles from the finish line, not 26 miles from the finish line. So, you know, but I also know that she's a warrior and that kind of attitude usually play, pays off well once they get a bit and bridle. On and they're willing to be led by their coach and go from the wild mustang to the uh to the thoroughbred that I think Alfine is, but you know, Chris, we haven't seen a couple of key names like we didn't see them at the half or the twenty five k championships we're gonna talk about in a second. You know where is Natasha Rogers? Where is why haven't we seen Emily Sisson? Where is she in this mix? What is she getting ready for? Like who are these younger Americans that we thought you and I were really high on, had been high on this last year? They're not. Is the USA running circuit just not a big enough deal that they're not getting their noses in there, or what? uh, What other plans do they have this year or the next couple years that will be different? Because it, I mean. For both those two, they got they got to be thinking about a marathon. They yeah. they don't have much time. Well, Rodgers, rumor has it she's been injured. That's
0: that's what the rumors I've heard for those connected to the Magnus ah, camp. Ah, okay, all right. I know where so, you're getting your info. We got some <laughs> injury issues, I think, with Rogers and then Sisson. We know how Ray Tracy plays it. He he likes to wait and wait and wait. my my words. New York City
1: up. debut this year. I think you're going to see. Emily Sisson debut at New York City this year. I, I don't know. I'm, I think there's I'm, no I'm chance
0: a- that happens, but I hope I'm wrong. Well,
1: we'll, see. we'll I, see. I think that they like to do it at New York, and she's a tough racer, so I'm throwing that one out there.
0: Fair enough. We'll see. So my second point, Sarah Hall. Consistently underrated, underestimated. You know, She's had success at the U.S. level, has never really had international success. Won the U.S. Marathon Champs at CIM before she had the S.I issue she was supposed to be at boston but had the si joint issue it would have been awesome to see her at boston with that mental toughness that you referenced to see if she could have hung in there for a a top finish in boston nevertheless though to be able to do run this time to almost come back and get the win off of apparently what has been mostly swimming and and aqua jogging and cross training type of training is really impressive you know sarah is someone who was Really hyped up coming out of college because she had she had big, big success at Stanford. She was at one point more hyped than Ryan, yeah, cr- <laughs> her, just crazy. Her husband, who ultimately overshadowed her in the elite ranks, and so, and now she's sort of been this journey woman, you know, who's competed at the steeplechase level all the way to the marathon, everything in between. She's not afraid to race a one mile or a marathon and just go at it. And normally she's near the top, you know, top five, top 10, every single time, if not podium. And so I don't know where she fits in this spectrum of US distance runners that are having such such success, but you can't leave her name off a list of of runners that are
1: just, that are inspiring. You know, I thought this whole thing with three marathons in less than six months, I was just completely against. And obviously... It didn't play out the way that she'd hoped it would play out, Um, but I'm a fan. I'm just a fan of the way that she races and her gutsiness and her, um, you know, her lack of of letting some little thing be a reason why she can't be great. And uh, I will tell people: I think people should be not sleeping on her when we're talking about making an Olympic team in the marathon because if the game goes. If the race goes out, in a, there's a lot of different ways where it could play into Sarah Hall's hands to make a team. I don't think she's going to win it, but I do think that she has a chance to make it. And, you know, Chris, we just keep saying that over and over again. I mean, we're going to have a short list that's going to be pretty long. <laughs> a long short list for
0: potential <laughs> candidates on that U.S. Women's Marathon team in 2020. Gwen Jorgensen, no concerns for me on this performance at all, as you alluded to. You know, if you look at Desi, she ran one thirteen at the New York City half before winning Boston. I would imagine that Gwen went into this race probably without tapering at all, probably on full mileage, probably without doing all the work that Schumacher would have ideally had her do before before racing the half under his purview. But my guess is she was so antsy and just needed a result that, you know, he's like, Let's
1: do it put your hand on the fire girl and for somebody <laughs> see if it burns yeah, for somebody like
0: Gwen <laughs> this is only going to serve to be a motivating thing you know i don't know if you saw afterwards she apparently has her own pr person or team yeah she's and, got an entire like, we need out, that marketing they program they put out a video <laughs> literally that same day basically with a humble pie with a pie emoji talking about you know how she ha- eats some humble pie today and <laughs> you know, it was time to get back to work. So, you know, she had already processed it and said, look, you know, I I probably, she probably had higher expectations on the day, but she understands where this fits in her journey. That it's one tiny little stepping stone and that's it. And with the mentality that she has as a gold medalist, this is only going to motivate her. So I'm still, I'm still bullish in terms of her ability to build from this into something much bigger.
1: I am too, Chris, but there is one thing that worries me a little bit about this race result for Gwen Jorgensen. Her career has been built on flat courses or track. And, you know... That course, Pittsburgh's course is hilly. It's got some got some hills in it. It's not a flat, flat course. And I wonder if that played a little bit into it. So I do worry a little bit for Gwen as we talk about going into Atlanta where we know we're going to see some hills. That's something she's going to need. To, that's going to be a weak spot she's going to need to shore up because um, almost all the Olympic distance races that she ran at the international level were always on very, very flat courses. That's one of the arguments people always make about those incredibly fast 10K times coming off of the off the bike with that Olympic distance racing is how can they run 29 minutes when they're running on dead flat courses. That doesn't change the fact that the men are running 29 minutes or the women are running 32 minutes or 30, you know, it's still super fast. But I do think that might have added a little bit of difficulty. And Gwen is no power runner. She's definitely, though she's tall, she is very lean, and, and uh, hills can be a problem for athletes like with that somatotype.
0: Well, we know that she'll be getting plenty of hills at altitude with the BTC team, as they probably she probably went straight from there back to altitude, my guess. So yeah, we'll see. They're, I
1: think they're in. Uh, from what I've been seeing on social media, I think they may have gone to Mammoth Lakes. They they change where they go. I don't even know if it's even individual athletes go to different places. I know they've been to Woodland Park, Colorado. They've been obviously they've had that camp that they usually have in um, Utah. So it's like it's really interesting how they play different locations. I'm very curious about that, but we'll save that for another conversation. For our Schumacher interview. Yeah. With, let's <laughs> I'll put it out there. Anybody <laughs> that's got intrigued. a connection, we're down. <laughs> we're down. So
0: on the men's side, interesting here that BTC finally on the men's side got a win over Scott Simmons and his US Army crew. Leonard Career had trouble at the US or at the World Half Marathon Championships, had a little bit of trouble here as well, as, at least as far as his standards go. Chris Derek Chris got the win, 102.37. Parker Stenson, local Austin area.
1: Baller! <laughs> local
0: Austin area talent. He went to the University of Oregon. Finished only one second back. Almost got the win from Chris. Andrew Colley, third, only three seconds back. So really tight up front for the men in relatively fast times of those one or two sort of mid mid times career was a full minute back almost of that in fifth which is interesting and obviously he struggled at the world half so perhaps he's coming back from something there finally the the, the magic is worn off for u.s army i don't know but this has got to be a big confidence builder for chris derrick who has struggled to get results recently at least where he wants him to be at the top of a list. And so what do you think this does for
1: him? Well, I hope it takes him I hope it starts a positive feedback loop that gets him going where he needs to be. Because he's a guy who if he can figure this marathon thing out, you and I both know he's got the chops. Um I just I just wonder a little bit about that why the women run so well in Jerry's program for the marathon distance but the men have yet to get a result. You know, sometimes, Chris, as we've, we know in our experience that once a positive feedback loop gets built up in a group, um, a lot of amazing things can happen. It's obviously happening on the women's side with uh, that crew. On the men's side for the marathon, they need a little bit of this. So getting a win here was critical and crucial. I'm excited. Hopefully, he'll continue to improve and see great results. Um I mean, really, the best guy running out of that group right now, and my, I mean, we do have Evan getting ready to get on the track, but the best guy running in that group right now is uh, Mohamed, who's just been killing it at every level. And uh, most people don't know him because he's a Canadian um, by birth and he competes for Canada, but he trains in that group and he's an absolute badass. He went to Wisconsin and uh, what a, it's going to be interesting to see him play out. But hopefully those guys can get a, a real, a thing going for them, just like their women have in the marathon. I hope so. We need
0: somebody who can challenge Rupp, and really that second and third spot on the U.S. men's marathon team is wide open, so hopefully he can pull it together and compete there because he does have the talent to compete on the world stage. We know that for sure. Parker Stenson, sort of a journeyman of sorts now, went to University of Oregon, Grew up here in Cedar Park. It was long time was doing ten k distance on the track in a, as a high schooler, which is fairly rare back in the day. So I was known for his his endurance from an early age. Almost nipped Derek at the line here. Pretty cool to see that.
1: Parker's a baller. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Parker Stinson. That guy is. Uh, he's he's gonna come present and correct every single time, and he's throws down. He looks like he's working way harder than he really is. And I think he's a little bit deceptive that way. It seems like he you know, he's in, in Boulder. He's got his game working really well. He's figuring the altitude thing out. He and his coach have a really seems like they have a really good plan and his coach is only really not work he's not working with that many people and it, it seems like Parker has got most of his attention. And it seems to be playing out positive Positive feedback loop we were talking about now a couple times in this episode, Chris. Parker's one of those guys, if he gets on a positive feedback loop and it keeps going and lifting and lifting, watch out. That guy, um, the marathon is eventually going to be his distance. And he's got, I don't know that he's fully committed there all the way in his heart. He probably has in his head, but I'm not sure if he has in his heart. I, I look forward to seeing him continue to throw down and create exciting races and make sure that everybody... He's he's the old school prefontaine guy. He's a rock star runner in my opinion. He's, he's not gonna afraid. make sure everybody bleeds and everybody hurts before they get to that finish line and he's gonna do everything in his power to make sure that they feel that way. Not only is he a local and not only is a cool kick ass dude, but he's he's a baller. I just love to watch ballers race.
0: And I'll remind the listeners that he was the one at the US half sorry, the US full marathon champs at CIM who went off the front at two oh eight pace, ultimately fell apart and didn't get what he wanted that day, but he's the type of guy who, if he shows up in Atlanta healthy and ready, you know there will be fireworks somewhere around Parker Stinson. Whether or not he makes a team is a huge question mark, but he will create drama and chaos in that race for sure.
1: And, and everyone will have to deal with it. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a huge trump card right there. That is, uh, I, you know, this is, Parker Stinson and Scotty McPherson, in a lot of ways, are very, very similar because they have that kind of attitude. I worked with Scotty for many years. We weren't able to get over the hump. Uh, I love to see, I love to see Parker throwing down and getting after it and not being afraid to, 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 to make everyone else pay. Two more things here. Andrew Colley
0: got third. Zap Fitness, another Zap Fitness guy. We talked to Joe. Still in a few episodes back, episode seventy one. So he's a teammate of Joe's. He got dropped a little bit and then came back on these guys to only finish three seconds down. Another impressive result for the Zap Fitness crew with Peter Ray leading that group. So that's cool to see. And then career, it's interesting if you look at the way the way the race played out. He was with the leaders until just after mile eleven. And then couldn't hang with Derek as he made the moves there. And from my, I obviously didn't see the full stream, but from the way the results look, it looked like career quit in the last mile because he basically lost a minute over the course of the, the final mile and a half or so, which if he was still doing some work, he probably shouldn't have lost that much time and barring you know injury or something like that. So it's interesting to see him now having quit at the, world half, at the World Half Champs. Now quit a little bit, even though he finished. He quit on the race in this one. So are there, is there a chink developing in the
1: armor of Leonard career? No, I don't think so. I think the dude needs to stop fucking racing. I mean, stop it now. Take a break. You don't. You and... I mean, it's just too much. Too much. You know, I, I don't know how those guys could keep throwing down with the kinds of race results they were getting week after week after week. He and Kip Chichir and who else was in that group? There was three of those guys. They were just throwing haymakers left and right all through the, sum, through the spring, through the summer, through the fall. And Chris, we talked about it. When was it? Yeah, there's chink in the armor, but it's just a temporary chink. No one can go that long. You, you chip away at your base enough, and you are going to get humbled. You are going to get crushed. And he definitely dropped a minute because it's like, well, hell, Why even be in that game? I mean, why even... I'm not going to get what I want, so... But he's in danger of losing those big points. I mean, he's got... There's some money in this USA running circuit, and he's in a little bit of danger of not getting a win here if he's not careful. But I think, Chris, mostly what we're seeing is just... He's just tired. He's tired, He needs those guys need to break. And they're getting, getting ready to go into track season? I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know how you can keep feeding that beast, man. That's like... There is no more. There is no more wood in the woodshed. We cannot feed this fire anymore. That's what I think is happening here. (laughs) Time for a break. Career,
0: although is he going to get it? I mean, he's got to go. Got to start the track season now. I don't
1: know. I mean, there are. There's another whole side of this too, Chris. Anytime somebody drops a whole minute or doesn't show up at a starting line, you know, you and I, we. We, we get our we get our heads askance a little bit we get a we start to do a little bit of the old uh what's going on Doper here? dance was going on here which i don't want to throw cast aspersions at that point here but it is one of those things that's too dna i if i hadn't seen repeatedly over and over and over again so many amazing performances i would be in that mindset a little bit but Leonard Career is also a baller, as we talked about. That's why we love him so much. He, he's like Chalema. They cut, they cut from the same cloth, like Parker Stinson is. They just like to race really, really hard. I just think you got a tired dude who needs to take a bit of a break. <laughs> Fair enough.
0: All right, so quickly, a week later, we had the U.S. 25K Championships in Great Gate River in Florida. Alphine Chalema got the win again a week later, going from the half to the 25K, which is 15.5 miles for those that don't know their metric system, so she got the win on the women's side with Sarah Crouch, behind and Emma Bates as well in the mix. On the women's side, on the men's side, Sam Chalanga, careers teammate, got it done there, and he was followed by Scott Fable from N.A.Z. Elite and Samuel Koski, another U.S. Army runner, who also raced the the half the week prior and got fourth. So you had a couple of folks coming back with decent results, Tolemuk being the, the big win, you know, getting the big win going back-to-back back weeks. Chalanga getting a win, which probably isn't a surprise for him, but kind of helps him maybe take some of the sting off of his London performance. Anything from the 25K that we need to talk about, Steve?
1: I don't think so. This is sort of, uh, uh, other than, I mean, I really do think on um, from the women's side, I mean, Tilly Muck has just the class of the field and didn't have. She just ran away from everybody right after a thirteen miler the day, to couple a week before. I, I think that the men's race was a little more interesting with Scott Fabel. I'm interested to see how that plays out with him over the long term in terms of getting his marathon game up because he's another guy who's sort of under the radar that people don't pay that much attention to who may be able to get something done. It'll be interesting to see. Of course, we had uh, an R. Austin shout-out to Allie Mendez-Cleaver, who, who placed in the top eight here. I think she was eighth place. Yep. Um, and a girl um, named Kelsey Bruce, who's from the Dallas area. I know her coach uh, pretty well, and she's continuing to improve and getting to have some real good results. She went to Dallas Baptist. She's getting some good results on the internet, on the U.S. circuit. Good to see that another Texan in the mix getting some great results done.
0: Yeah, I have to, I just have this feeling going back to the NAZ elite. I have this feeling that assuming Hoka keeps supporting that group, you're gonna see an NAZ elite athlete on an Olympic marathon team. I think
1: you might see two, Chris. I think you might see one on the men's side and one on the women's side. And who they are, it's hard to play out here. But they only have three women. I mean I mean it, for all intents and purposes, depending on how those races play out, the way that those women, um, the three women they have, Tilliam Muck, Stephanie Bruce and, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kellen Taylor. Kellen Taylor, those are tough day, big, big, big race performers on tough days. And, and I also think their men's team, I think their men's team is nowhere near as strong as the women's and they have twice as many guys on their men's team as they do the women's team. But you're right. I think that there's a chance that we can see an NAZ elite athlete on an Olympic team. And that would be, um, for Hoka money, incredibly well spent.
0: All right, a couple of quick things because we've got to get to our interview with Greg. Just announcements that we'll get to more in detail later. Because I, I I just don't have the time to talk about it now, Steve. Galen Rupp and Jordan Essay both announced they're going to be racing in Chicago in the fall. Pusha, up. So, I have nothing to say anyway. So, so. we'll be coming back to... Predictions on Galen and Jordan. Do we need to start talking
1: NOP certified instead of just RUP certified? (laughs) I did come up with a new nickname for him, by the way, Galen Pup. I kind (laughs) of like that one. Galen Pup. (laughs) Galen
0: Pup will be racing in Chicago, defending his Chicago title. Jordan got third there last year, so she'll be going back and is coming back apparently relatively soon to start running again from her stress reaction. Also, A heads up, as you're listening to this, coming up here on May 26th, we've got the Prefontaine Classic, the big U.S. Diamond League meet for the late spring, and it's always a good race to watch. It'll be on NBC Sports, most likely. Sometimes it's on NBC, so check your listings for that and try to watch some of that. I know the Bowerman Mile is stacked as an example, but... Uh, that's always a big meet, attracts a big international field, and there'll be a bunch of Americans in there uh, fighting for wins as well. So check out the Pref- Prefontaine Classic. Go Mario Hall! Coming up this week, Mario Hall from UT as well as the Bowman Track Club will be racing. But we'll be talking about full Prefontaine results, but definitely go out there, check your NBC listings and try to watch it so you can then be more informed when we do our recap. All right, let's jump into our interview, Steve, with Greg. We've already done probably enough of an introduction on Greg, who really doesn't need much introduction. But if you haven't already been exposed to McMillanRunning.com, check that all out there. And it'll be in the show notes. And we'll, of course, share it in the show notes. He's also the author of You Only Faster. We get to all of that and more with Greg, so we'll bring him on now. All right, we're welcoming Greg McMillan to the show. How's it going, Greg? good how about you we're doing well here in austin although it's going to be pretty damn hot here so i think we're going to get our first 100 degree day today so you're right you're in a much better place i'm sure (laughs) but we're happy to be talking to you before we jump into a little background on you greg I, i know you were in boston we had a full show dedicated to recapping boston we have a lot of people who ran the race in our groups or who listened to this podcast and ran and I know a couple years ago, you did a, a deep dive after the fact on the heat in Boston and what that might have done to affect times. So I wanted to start there and just get your impressions of the day. And if you've had any science in your head on how the conditions may have affected people on that crazy morning.
2: Well, I will say it was one year I was glad I wasn't running. Uh, it definitely was uh, pretty ominous out there. And uh, just kind of uncomfortable, right? Like that may be the conditions that a runner least likes to run in. We'd prefer snow or a little bit warmer or something, but wow, just cold wind and rain was really tough. And I thought it was going to be Armageddon. I really thought that everyone was going to have really struggle and potentially lots of health issues and things like that. And to be honest, it ended up being much better than my fears. And we even had a lot of people that ran personal best, ran really well. We had some people that were off by sort of just the normal percent that they might be off in a marathon. And then we had a few that kind of struggled on the day, but it definitely was not as challenging as I thought. Uh, Maybe for a few reasons. First, cold is certainly better than hot. You guys know that. And so that contributed to the race being a little better. Second, the wind, which I thought was going to really wreak havoc, of course, for the bulk of the field, you're sort of running around people the whole way. So it was only a few times during the race that it seemed like people really struggled into the wind. Uh, And then the wet was sort of, seemed to depend on how people dressed and their tolerance of it, whether they ran well or not. So it ended up not being as bad a day as I thought, though certainly you know, the people at the front of the race had a much different experience of uh, having to lead and, and bear the brunt of the wind. Um, and, you know, they had the advantage that they they were inside leading into the race, whereas most of our runners were sitting outside in the village and getting cold and wet before starting the race. So definitely a very challenging day.
1: So what you're saying is no excuses. Yeah, I, I think
2: that uh, it's hard to say, you know, hey, this is a 5% day or a 10% day. It definitely, we had some people run great PRs, and I just was like, how did you do that? But uh, it just didn't seem to be quite as bad as I feared going into it.
1: And how many folks did you have uh, running there? How many folks were you, your, your crew, responsible for
2: yeah, we had about a little over 1,200 in the race, so we had a good selection of people from kind of the front, middle, and back, and across the board, it was, you know, most people ran pretty well, some people a little bit off uh, that struggled with the weather, and then we, we only had a handful that, that really had a tough day. What
0: do you tell those runners that, that didn't have the good day? What's the, what's the pep talk afterwards?
2: Well, hey, you you ran the 2018 Boston. It's going to go down (laughs) in history as you were there. And, you know, it's Boston. So I think a lot of people accept when it's not even a good day. They're like, well, at least I ran the Boston Marathon. And one guy was joking, well, at least I wasn't at work. So this is better than going (laughs) to work. So I was like, there you go. That's good. (laughs)
0: Look on the bright side. You got it done. Yep. Awesome. Let's back up a little bit, Greg, then and get a little bit of background on you. I know a lot of people who listen know your name. We've referenced your programming on our show several times. You're famous, most famous for the, the Macmillan calculator, which we'll get to in a second. And of course, you've got the book, You, you Only Faster, that I know a number, of people, a number of people have checked out. But tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got into running initially and how that evolved to becoming a coach.
2: Well, I I grew up in rural Tennessee, and so we were super active as kids, and I think that kind of laid the foundation of being good at running, just because we were always, you know, walking and running and biking a lot. And we had uh, what was called a countywide field day where I grew up, and in PE you had to participate in all the different events, and then the top two in your school got to represent your school at the county meet, which was a big deal because it was in the football state seemed like, you know, it was like giant stadium to a little kid. And I ended up, you know, winning the the mile run in my PE class at my school and then winning it at the county championships. And I did that for two or three years when I was in elementary school. And so the high school coach is smart. He just goes and watches that meet. And he says, well, there's my high jumper. There's my distance guy. There's my shot put thrower. And so by the time I got to middle school, you know, he's sort of saying, hey, why don't you come out and run? And so I did. And ultimately, like a lot of people who run in high school and then college, you just fall in love with the sport. And it really became my passion and ended up being state champion and was very interested in becoming better. And that led to an interest in studying exercise science, which is what I did in undergraduate and graduate school. And any time that you you know, are a decent runner and you're studying exercise science, people start asking you questions. And I was obviously excited to talk about it and explain what I was learning in class. And, you know, soon they're asking you for a workout and then soon you're writing a training plan and soon they call you coach. So it wasn't really by design. It just sort of happened that people started asking me and I was happy to, to help. I love helping people. And that's kind of how I got into coaching uh, mainly through my own selfish interest in being a better runner and sharing that, um, you know, desire and what I was going through to try to be better and kind of blended those three things of trying to, you know, still try to compete and run the best I can now and studying exercise science and then coaching. And uh, here it is today, you know, 30 years later.
1: So you, you went to the University of Tennessee. Back at a time when it was in their, when we would call it their, their heyday. Yeah. What was, what was that experience like running with, uh, you know, one of the greatest distance runners in the U S, um, in history and Todd Williams, and then an entire team of, of pretty much badasses. I mean, that was a full of really tough guys and you guys were always in the hunt for a podium position at the NCAA championships and cross. Um, mm-hmm. and then you had one of the most mercurial and interesting coaches on the face of the planet to do. Right?
2: <laughs> well, it was interesting because I went to University of Tennessee, Chattanooga first, and that was a really good fit for me because I was sort of a medium fish in a in a smaller pond there. Uh, and then I transferred to University of Tennessee, Knoxville, the main campus uh, in my junior year. And then I was definitely a very small fish in a big <laughs> pond. and. I did run at the same time that Todd ran each day, but uh, definitely didn't run with him much. But what was interesting at Tennessee at that time, and as you said, that was the time they won the national championships um, in, I think, 91, 92. That's right when I graduated. Uh, And though I was never really, you know, at that level to compete at a university like that, it was really cool to see. Certainly, Todd, who was a standout, and we we would test him in the lab and that was what was cool was that because they had such good runners, we would test them in the physiology lab, and he was just such a unique specimen physically, he had all the gifts, and then mentally he had this complete drive and then coach Brown, Doug Brown, who was the coach there, he was sort of you know old school and and fit really well with. The training of Todd, who's kind of one of those I'll run through a brick wall. But then he also had another guy named Glenn Morgan, who was probably the opposite of Todd. And he was kind of the number two man, but he was a low mileage guy, very injury prone. And they had to tweak his training so much. And that's where I first kind of witnessed this idea of, wow, these two guys are both really good, but they train very different in their strategy. So you know, Todd was big volume, do every workout, the maximum of everything. And Glenn was, you know, much slower on easy days and much less volume. But yet they both were so successful. So it was definitely an, an interesting time. And and I have to say, I never, you know, I was just there a little bit. <laughs> I was never really, you know, at that level once I went to Knoxville.
1: I first met Coach Brown at the Molson party at Penry <laughs> I can just leave it there. He was telling a dolomite story. Um I'll just leave the the entire the rest of that alone. Um Coach Warhurst was there as well. It was yeah, it was funny. it was the first time I realized, wow, these guys are crazy. I they this are. this world is this world is a little bit different than I thought. Because my coach was super old school. He was Doug's coach. He was your coach's coach. Yeah. So <laughs> but anyway, um it, it It's great to hear your background and hear how that played in. And, you know, your experience in the lab, how has that sort of informed sort of the way that you um, started your coaching? Did you feel like you were much more of a science-based coach and then moved into a little bit more of the going to the... Because you really are an art. You're an artist. You're not just a science coach. You You have the ability to look at it from a whole bunch of different perspectives. Tell us a little bit about how you transitioned from that or and or if you even see it transitioning or if you see them as maybe two pieces of the same puzzle. I'm curious to see what your take is on that.
2: Well, I think I definitely started out feeling like science was the answer. It was going to be directive of how people should train. And it, you know, quickly you learn that there are these general principles that human beings have in training, but you also begin to see individual variability. And so that starts to play into, okay, it's not a one size fits all. And then I was really lucky when I went to graduate school, my advisor was a guy named Russ Pate. And he top 10 at the Boston Marathon multiple times, qualified for Olympic marathon trials, I think three times, got his PhD at University of Oregon in 1975. So he was there with Pre and you know Bowerman and the whole load of them. And Whenever I got there, he and I, were, you know, we always talk about running and training and stuff. And he said, well, here's the thing. Exercise science is just going to tell you why the things work that coaches and athletes have already figured out. It will help you tease out the individual differences, but it will not provide, you know, some breakthrough answer that we don't already have. It's just, is the right training being applied to the right athlete? And so that really, I guess, sums up what I feel is, as you mentioned, sort of the art and the science. I do think that understanding the science and applying principles can help with the tweaking of athletes' training so that it matches them a little bit better. But what athletes know and coaches know and have learned works, works. And there's many different methods. And as long as you understand kind of the madness behind the method, you can apply it to people in a way that can be successful. So I feel like if you were just scientific, you miss part of it. And if you're just sort of a robot uh, and just, you know, spitting out canned plans, I think you miss part of it as well. I think it's got to be The blend of the two and then the ultimate of course is if you can become a coach in the way that you're able to inspire and motivate athletes to do something beyond what they think they can do and that's the fun of it but that to me is the ultimate is if you can get to that point where you can sort of sort of tweak things and use the science and the general principles and Take what you've learned from the best coaches around it, but then you know connect on a level with athletes so that they begin to believe something that if you told them in the beginning, they think you're crazy.
1: Preach,
0: brother, preach <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna spend plenty of time on the magic for sure, but I do want to go back to the foundation of Mcmillan running Where did that start? What was the genesis for you of your coaching business, and what would you say are your core training principles within McMillan running?
2: Well, I got lucky in that I was coaching an Olympic development team, uh, in the late 1990s, early two thousands. And when that ended, there were still people that wanted to work with me. And some people that thought I knew what I was talking about because I worked with fast runners, uh, wanted to work with me. And so I set up mcmillanrunning.com at that time, pretty early in the online coaching world. And it's just sort of—I thought it would be a part-time business because my wife was getting her PhD, and I knew we were probably going to be moving around with her job. And it ended up being more than a full-time job, and so it's kind of grown from there. So it was really just the, you know, result of people being interested in working with me that I needed a platform to do that, and the philosophy is kind of the blend like we've talked about. It ultimately is we know these general principles that work for training athletes for each different distance and each different sort of duration of races that they may be doing. But then we also know that people are kind of unique in their own physiology and their psychology, so we need to take that into consideration. And then people, you know, the bulk of the people we work with, are busy professionals. And so you've got to balance what you ideally would do with what can fit into their life schedule and being able to move it around. And so the work that I do sort of tries to work underneath this umbrella of the general principles with a lot of tweaking of things to specifically help athletes with their unique nature, and then making that fit into their life schedule in a way that is motivating and maintains motivation and builds their motivation and confidence. Because if you can get them decently fit, but then really confident and excited about their race, then you've got a great chance of having them go out and achieve their goals.
0: So starting on the, the general training principles, and let's assume for a second, we're talking about those going longer distance. We have a lot of half marathoners and marathoners who listen to the show. From a from a kind of core physiological principle standpoint for those training, for those distances, what are the things that you point to? What are the three or four things that you think matter there?
2: The first thing is they have to have muscular durability because the bulk of, you know, completing those longer races, particularly if they're going to take a long time doing those races, they just need to have the musculoskeletal system that can handle it. Uh, and so that's why you know, consistent weekly volume in the long runs and all of those things are really helpful in building a musculoskeletal system that can tolerate it. And then secondly, they have to be sort of physiologically prepared for the demands of the event. So if you're going to race for two, three, four, five, six hours, then you need to be prepared to be really efficient at running at your goal pace. You need to be prepared to fuel and hydrate at those paces uh, for the duration And you need to have some exposure to the mental suffering that will be inevitable in those races. And you have to be okay with that and kind of look forward to that. So the training is kind of set up to get you muscularly prepared, get you sort of uh, metabolically prepared, but then also to get you mentally prepared for that. And, you know, the regular training that we do... the weekly volume, the long runs, the race specific type workouts that we do, some of the workouts where we really want to challenge the athlete uh, mentally, we do those and, you know, just things to help them essentially be prepared so that race day is not a new experience. Uh, it's more of an exciting experience and is is not uh, so scary, I guess.
1: I love how you say that. We preach on our side a lot, what does the race require you know and, mm-hmm. and many of the foundational principles we utilize here at rogue um follow from that, which don't always fall nicely and neatly into these you know energy system boxes right <laughs> they're yeah. they're they're a lot more about when the shit hits the fan, how do you deal how do you how do you adjust what do you do and um so Talk to us a little bit. You have a lot of experience working with, with people in the flesh, you know, face-to-face, and you now have this unbelievably successful business working with people primarily virtually. Um, what are the nuances and challenges with those two different techniques? Many of our listeners, um, some of them train with us in live and in person, and then others are, are already, they may even be Macmillan running customers already. What what do you, they might be interested in knowing how you as a coach and how you plan for that sort of virtual versus physically present uh, dichotomy that that's out there.
2: Well, it'd be ideal to be in person with everyone. That's obviously lovely to do. It's just not practical. Um, you know, when you're, we're a global company, so we have athletes around the world. So it's obviously just not possible to do that. In, in the flesh, as you say, is great because you, you have the hands-on sort of while they're doing the workout and you can speak with them when everything is sort of, you're, you're at the track or you're finishing the long run and you can put your eyes on them. So that's always nice to help a coach, you know, because a lot of coaching is, is visual and auditory. So you're watching athletes and you can see how they look and how they're, how they're changing across a run. And then you're listening to them and what they're saying and how they're saying things to try to get feedback. And that's pretty immediate when you're in the flesh. So that's a a lovely situation. And it's, it's fun, obviously, to get together with runners that way. But online, you know, one of the things that's nice about running is a lot of it is just doing the work, it's just putting in the workouts and getting the runs in. And so, you know, having the correct, delivery of the training plan and then the feedback mechanism so that they're able to kind of answer those questions virtually that you would ask them in person seems to work pretty well for people. And so many people have, you know, life schedules that just don't facilitate them getting to scheduled workouts with the local running group, or they may live in a place where there there isn't even a running group. And so I think the online provides a nice option or they may just may want to work with somebody that's, you know, doing something different or than what they've been doing. And so online can work. It's, you know, both are are very successful. I I enjoy doing both, um, but it's just the nature of the beast that I can't be in multiple places at one time. But it is really cool to be working with athletes across the world.
0: How do you get in somebody's head in a virtual environment? You know, We have a a podcast-based training group, and we interact with them through virtual tools, but not seeing them in workouts, not seeing how they respond in those tough moments in a workout. Sometimes it can be hard to know where somebody's mental space is, and you talked about the importance of that. What's your experience with that in a virtual environment?
2: A lot of it is kind of reading between the lines, isn't it? That you're really trying to tease out from that person's responses and the questions that you're asking that you start to tease out, you know, why maybe if they had a poor run or workout, why was that? And, you you know, you've got some history with them as to what their life schedule might have been leading into it. So you're trying to tease that out. And usually, you know, if you've got enough exposure to that person, you can start to see uh from their feedback that they're giving you what's where their mind is uh, you know i got one guy that just had a an unsuccessful marathon and he was really beating himself up about it and then i was able to say well let's just go back a little bit and look you missed this key workout because of a work situation then you got sick you you were supposed to do this workout on this day and then you moved it to the next day but then you weren't able to fuel like you normally would there was all these sort of reasons and then we were able to sort of back him away from the cliff so he wasn't beating himself up too much so a lot of it is just constant communication and figuring out you know what's going on with them and where you need to help them because some people are really anxious and nervous and worried about their training so you have to communicate with them a little bit differently than maybe somebody who's kind of you know, they they have high goals, but their lifestyle and their commitment to it doesn't quite match that. So you have to maybe try to help them get get and stay a bit more motivated and disciplined in their training. So again, kind of reading between the lines uh is kind of what I try to do at least.
0: You jumping to the the monster you created that is the McMillan calculator, <laughs> I would imagine there are moments when you regret to even putting that out to the world, but uh, but it is a useful tool, something we certainly use with our runners and you know has evolved through the years from its beginning, in In my understanding, in your graduate training. So talk about where the genesis of the Macmillan calculator, what has evolved to, and how you tell people to use it, because I know there's a lot of people that probably want more from it than really it can provide.
2: Well, again, coming from my selfish needs, um, when I was first started coaching, I coached as I do now a really wide range of runners. So, some people that were much slower than I am, and some people much faster. And it's fairly easy to provide pace guidelines for somebody who's your same speed because all the pacing makes sense to you. But if somebody's way faster or way slower, It gets more difficult because you don't know from your own experience what that would feel like pace wise. So I was looking at all of the existing ways that coaches were coming up with pace guidelines for workouts and training, and then also race predictions so that I could help athletes, you know, sort of know what pace would be appropriate for races. And there are a lot of good ones, but there wasn't one that I felt like had everything. And then based on what I was doing for my graduate research, which was a little bit more teasing out the individual differences in runners and um, connecting that with these different thresholds and capacities that we all have and how they may be different between each other. That sort of was the genesis of me going, well, wait a minute. I I think I might just, I think I can do this myself and create something that I feel like would work for me. And I did this in Excel and I just had a notebook. In fact, I still have this binder that has just like 300 pages of, you know, times and paces and all wow. of that is kind of how it started. And so it was old school because when I started doing coaching, it was faxing things back and forth. So, you know, you just open the binder and find the person's uh, you know, their performance ability and pull out their paces for their workouts and, and that. And then in 2001, a buddy of mine, who's a programmer, we put it, we put it on an article that I had written, the six steps of training, which is still on my website. And it was on page three of that article. It was like, Oh, and here's the calculator that I use when I'm coaching athletes. And then maybe a year later, my buddy who had programmed it, he said, have you seen the stats on this page? What is on this page? And I was like, I don't know. And so we looked and it was the calculator. And so it had become popular and I think <laughs> it got on some forums and message boards that it was there. And so we kind of evolved it in that it's more and more moved to the front page now. And um, it's been evolved. uh You know, I've continued to getting feedback, and there's probably been five iterations of it, where tweaking things to make it a little bit better and more useful to people.
1: When you talk about tweaking, I think our listeners they're 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 a pretty training focused group. What kind of tweaks are you talking about? You know, your calculator for some folks gets a bit of a bad rap as being um, weighted to marathon, half marathon specificity and away from like you know, somebody who runs a marathon, how in the world are you gonna get their two hundred meter equivalency time? You know? Talk a little bit about those adjusts adjustments that you've done and and sort of sort of maybe a little bit of the criticism people have had about it and how you deal with that. I mean, obviously nothing's ever gonna be perfect no matter what, but give us a little bit of that history.
2: Well you have to understand
1: that the the
2: prediction it's a predictor, right? It's an estimate. It's not written in stone. It's not always correct, though for a lot of people it is, but some people it's, it's not. And you have to understand that the farther you get away from what you've been doing, the less predictive it will be. And so certainly, you know I'll have high school kids who you know they're now normally just fast, but they have no endurance. That's just sort of the nature of being a new runner in high school. And they can run the 400 and 800 times, but they'll never get close to the two miles. so they're like, your calculator sucks and I'm like, well, No, I think you just need more endurance and that's the problem. And so this is illuminating that you lack endurance. And then the same thing if people, you know, come into the sport and do half marathon and marathon, but they've never really done a lot of speed work or focus on running a fast 5K or 10K. They may have run them during half marathon or marathon training. And so it's difficult for them to meet the predictor possibly. And you're like, well, yeah. Why don't you take a season and focus on 5K, 10K, and see if you can bring it in line? So it's just a matter of understanding that it is—it's an estimate, and it's a tool to illuminate, give you another, you know, data point that you and your coach can use to kind of identify where are your strengths, where are your weaknesses, and you know, it's been tweaked over the years to be you know we added ultra to it which you know introduced a whole new set of potential and problems too uh and then the actual algorithms that are behind it are have been adjusted because now i think we're closing in on 20 million runners have used it so there's a lot of sort of data um from the usage and then we you know have feedback and knowledge from the athletes that we coach as to, you know, what they're finding works and doesn't work. So, and then the layouts changed a little bit to try to make it a little more user-friendly. And we, you know, it started as a real coaching tool and now it's become a runner's tool. So we had to adjust for that. And then GPS watches really became popular. So we used to give everything in split times for like repeats, but a lot of people, particularly if they never ran in high school or college, they'd never do anything in split times. They do everything in pace. So we had to present pace now as well. So just again, feedback from runners, what they want, what they don't. We try to, try to help if we can.
0: So Greg, one of the questions I get all the time from athletes is when I'm using the calculator, do I use goal paces or do I use current fitness level paces when deciding what to do in a workout? And obviously as a coach, When I get those questions, I can have more complex conversations with people and I know a little bit of their history so I can direct them in one direction or the other, or sometimes we find a place in the middle. What do you tell athletes that might not have a coach on that question?
2: The way the McMillan calculator is designed is that it's designed to use your current fitness to establish your training paces. And those paces are not to get you to your current fitness level. The paces are actually designed, um, and this is part of the sort of the, the method behind the madness, is that they're designed to stress your system at the optimal level to get an adaptation to take you to the next fitness level. So you use your current fitness level and the training paces that come from the calculator are based on that and they will give you the right amount of stimulus to take your, a next step in, the, in your fitness development. And the goal pace uh, information is used primarily for goal pace workouts, obviously, and prediction of other um, race performances. So you know, oh, if I want to run hour and 50 minutes for the half marathon, what do I need to get my 10K at? So really, the the current fitness is the main uh, thing that the paces are derived from, and then the athlete typically, you know, every you know one to three months, they'll be doing races and intermediate races and hopefully improving, and then they can adjust their paces from that. And that's why I had to add the goal fitness question to the calculator. Because people were putting in their goal fitness as their current fitness. Well, then it's providing paces to actually make them faster than their goal. And then some people, particularly if they had a a fair amount to improve, they would actually be overtraining if they were using those paces. So adding that question kind of helped people get a little bit more dialed in.
1: It's like people cheating the uh, VDOT system that, you know, so many people do that. They say, oh, my VDOT then they eat it and then they get over, they get hurt or they get overtrained or whatever happens.
2: Yeah. It's hard because we're, we're sort of, we like to order our performances, right? We'd like to have a menu and you know, it's Boston qualifying. Well, that's the performance I want, or I want to break a certain time barrier. That's the performance I want. And that's somewhat arbitrary and not necessarily in line with what is doable. And so people can get into a situation where they're, they're overtraining and not in an optimal zone, which leads to the injuries and the burnout and all that.
0: Another question from this, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of people who are looking at the paces for their marathon or half marathon times and trying to hit in a race some of the faster end of the spectrum times, it it can become difficult, especially if they're an athlete that's primarily focused there you know, a lot of the runners we train here in Austin come into the sport and they go straight to the long stuff. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of, become where their strengths lie and they have trouble hitting the lower end of the lower or the faster ends of the range. Yeah. So as it relates to this question of individual strengths versus just a weakness that needs to be developed or given some stimulus, how do you know the difference? If that makes sense, you know, how do you know if something's just Uh, an individual sort of strength that needs to be flexed versus a weakness that needs to kind of be massaged or avoided versus just a blind spot that they haven't worked on enough to know the difference, if that makes sense.
2: It does make sense. And a lot of it comes down to the experiences that the runner has had. So if they, you know, like, Steve and myself, we ran from when we were little all the way until we were older. And so we, and we ran shorter distance races all the way up to longer distances. So, you know, that's sort of a, a lot of information that can tease out these individual things. And boy, I I really do well with this type of workout and not with this other, but if you have a new runner or somebody who's sort of only participated in one sort of type of race, like a longer race, uh, then A lot of times they don't have that information. So you have to give them a variety of workouts. And as a coach, sort of tease out, how are they responding to that type of workout? How are they recovering from that workout? How are they adapting to that workout? And, you know, that's a lot of what the book You Only Faster is about is like teasing, learning, asking the right questions to figure out for that athlete. Is this something that they just haven't done and they need to do more of it. But then once they do more of it, okay, is this something they're really good at? Or do they, are they not as good at And, you know, are they able to run toward the faster end of the pace range? Or are they at the slower end of the pace range? And that gives us some information that helps us kind of tweak it. Obviously, the more experience the runner has, the more varied in their experience, the easier it is to kind of tease that out. But it, kind of goes to what coaches are always saying to athletes, which is be attentive to your body when you're training and start to see these trends. And particularly like you guys, you have a big group, right? And so athletes can say, wow, on this type of workout, I'm able to run with my training partner. This one, I'm in front of my training partner. This one, I'm behind my training partner. Or she's much faster than I am at the half marathon, but I, I can stay with her at the 5K. So this begins to tease out these sort of strengths and weaknesses uh, of the runner, which gives a little bit more for the runner. At least it helps them kind of explain why they either do really well or typically why they don't do as well. But as a coach, it also helps, you know, what, uh, how to kind of change the ingredient mix in the recipe to get the end result a little bit better. So you're not having athletes do training that's not in a chord or meshes with them. It's sort of the ideal training to match their physiology and psychology. If you do that, they typically will have more and more frequent uh, successful workouts, which builds their confidence. And as a coach, that's what you want going into races.
1: Yeah. Getting those positive feedback loops that make it easier and easier to, to give them the results they're looking for, to be having those good starting line experiences. Yeah. It's, uh, Mm -hmm. it's always, um, it's amazing that your tool this you know it's just algorithms and plugging numbers in is able to you're able to good coaches are able to pull such nuance out of just those set numbers and that's the really you know for all our listeners out there who are still on the coaching fence Chris and I are always like find a coach we don't care who it is but find a coach <laughs> and yeah. and that's what that's what good coaches do they are able to take those numbers and make them mean something that really plays can play out for them and, and, and results. Yeah. And
2: that's why we added,
1: you know, in the calculator, now there's a
2: speedster button and an endurance monster button. So there's even more teasing out of the speed you should use based on your runner type. Once you figure that out. And there's also an article on the site about a hybrid calculator, you know, maybe you, for certain types of workouts, you need to use, you know, your long distance performance times. And then for shorter, maybe you use a different performance time. So there's, again, just trying to provide a better and better tool for athletes.
1: So are you still a track and field fan or are you jaded by this world that we, this, 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 I mean, since you and I've been in this sport, there have been question marks, you know, since the nineties about what's going on in our sport. But, you know, you've, you were a coach to an elite group for a good, for a long period of time and you ran at a, at a, at elite level. Um, and are you still a fan or are you, are you now like, uh, I could I take it or leave it. It doesn't really matter.
2: I think I've, I sort of go between each end of the spectrum. I love the sport. I love competing. I love, you know, knowing what athletes go through to get ready. I mean, Desi winning Boston, how can you not be a fan of that? I was just so incredible. And you have those experiences, but it is hard to sort of, you just can't ignore the constant, you know, negatives of people cheating. And certainly when I was doing the pro team, you know, we just, they hurt us because, you know, I was always telling the athletes, they're not keeping you from running fast. That was my like answer whenever the topic came up. But ultimately, they took away opportunities. And so, you know, the sport is about sponsorship. And if you win or you place higher, those things make a difference. And if you're a winner, then you get invited to other things. And if somebody that's a cheater wins and you're second or third or fourth or fifth, then you don't get invited. So it's, it's really tough uh, for sure. And I... So I don't know I don't have a good answer to that. It depends on the day you know I'll be excited one day and then I'll you know something will happen, and I'll be like, "Ah, so frustrating.
1: Well, we jam this fan stuff down our listeners' throats. we spend the first 20 minutes, fifteen 20 minutes of every episode telling them what just happened in the world and we learned over the last couple of 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 months to put a, a little uh station mark when we're done with that period so people can listen to the to the tech talk stuff if they want to jump to <laughs> it, but we can't stop. He, Chris and I can't stop being fans. I'm, I'm way less jaded. I guess for me, it's always been they're either doing it or they're not doing it. There's no way I can catch them. Uh, Chris is a more nuanced fan where he gets a little more. He, he takes it a lot more personal. I just think there's a whole bunch of cheaters out there and each person has to make their decision on how they're going to play with it. But um, when, as you think about the um, experiences that you had, I mean, it, when you, your experiences you had as a as a pro coach, I mean things are getting crazy in the u s now aren't they? I mean our the, the the playing field that you and I were operating on as coaches of elite groups, which um you were definitely an elite group, and my group was a was more of a sub elite group but we the the playing field has completely changed the level of athlete coming out of the college ranks and the the heights that we're seeing, especially on the women's side athletes competing at from the 15 of 800 all the way up to the marathon it's a pretty exciting time for American distance running do you still feel confident that in the U.S. generally people are doing it the right way
2: I I don't know it's difficult to know for sure because it's you know you just hear so much stuff and it's it's overwhelming um but I think that there's a lot of people that are doing it the right way that are having a lot of great success. And so, you know, that's the what you kind of come back to, right? Is that you know, this person, this coach, this sort of training group, they're doing it the right way and they're having great success. And they prove that you don't have to do those things to, you know, to have that success. And so, certainly there's been an ongoing, um, you know gathering of of good athletes with good coaches with good support and a lot of belief that they can go out and and run really well and that's happening and that wasn't the case you know certainly when we were in our infancy of starting our groups and trying to pr- do what we could do to help us distance running
0: but you've coached elites and now adult athletes of all levels how are they the same and how are they different
2: they're more the same than they're different. The sameness is they still go through the same emotional roller coaster that is training for a, a big goal, though somewhat theirs is more stressful because they have financial obligations and opportunities on it that the rest of us don't. Uh, and that whole building of an athlete from where they are to where they want to go and working with them across that is very, very similar in, for both. The circumstances can be different, for sure. The biggest um, difference, of course, is just the speed. Is Everything is so fast, and everything is the percentages of improvement are so low and what you're trying to tease out, and then how can you, can you do that from a physical standpoint, but then you also have to feed the mental standpoint figure out what what that athlete needs to be able to go to the next level and some of them you know i I would say in in the group that I did the biggest challenge that we had because we never got like the superstar athletes out of college we were always like tier two tier three tier four athletes and trying to kind of move them up the biggest challenge we had was mental in that we I could get them really really fit mm-hmm. but They had, sometimes that would be, I could get them fitter faster than physically than I could mentally. And so they would rush up against competing against people or hearing split times that, you know, were scary. And so trying to get them to be comfortable with hearing those splits or racing against those people or being in front of those people in races was a big part of it. So I think that they're more similar Uh, And that's one of the things I feel like new runners figure out when they do talk to faster runners is they're like, wow, they, they have the same struggles that I do. I thought, I thought every run was magical for them. I thought every run was amazing. They never had a bad workout or a race and it just, they make it look so easy. It didn't seem like they were suffering when they were doing the race and they kind of begin to see, and this is why runners stand around talking to each other after races for hours, (laughs) because it is this commonality in what we experience.
0: Yeah, I found in my experience interacting with elites that they're, they have more insecurities than the adult athletes <laughs> I've been exposed to. And yeah. it, it's always... Well, in
2: some way, they have... Sorry to interrupt. Somewhat, they have to be freaks, right? They have to be unusual to do what they're trying to do. So you do definitely get some characters.
0: <laughs> but it is... But the ones that you see have success, you know that a big part of the difference is the mental component you know the, those that are able to dial in that result when they are ready from a fitness standpoint so let's talk about the mental training side of things we did a big mental training series with this podcast we talk about a, in a lot of different ways how to prepare your mind for your goal race what are the things you emphasize
2: well number one is to be comfortable with the suffering and to accept that if you're going to race at your you know, your highest ability to have a peak performance, you need to accept that it's going to be uncomfortable and you got to be okay with that. Because a lot of athletes, uh, you know, we always want to feel great throughout the race. And a lot of feeling great throughout the race is having an expectation that it's going to be very painful. It's going to be a lot of suffering. And so the more you can get them sort of on board with that idea, then when the, when the suffering does come, it's not a shock to the system they're better able to handle it. So a lot of the training is let's dial in how to run comfortably at your race pace, but then also put them in situations where they are suffering uh, in a similar way or maybe it's smaller doses, but they're having exposure to the mental challenges that will come in the race. And if you can do that, then the race itself, you know, kind of take, it shouldn't be that difficult for them mentally. And then the final component, which I think, you know, this is what we try to do as coaches, right, is that we're, we're trying to get that athlete so motivated, so confident, so excited to go out there and do their best at a, a realistic but yet challenging goal that they, you know, they have that advantage going into the event that they are just so excited about the race and,
1: and what may come. You know, Greg, over the last... Five six years I'd always used um I'd always done lots of quality workouts in long runs I'd always knew that that was crucial for marathon and half marathon success, but I was having athletes like kind of not finish races out and in the way that I thought that they were capable of from the 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 myriad of workouts we did and all the things I thought that indicated clearly they were ready to race to set a certain goal time and then um I, get, I just got to the point where I was like, okay, there's something I'm missing here. And sort of went back to brass tacks and went through all, my, all the people who are, have been um, influ- key influencers for me. And you're one of those folks. Um, and I went back through some of your stuff and I realized how critical and crucial your idea of fast finishing is. Not just from a physiological standpoint, but really, really from a psychological standpoint. I call it a close. We like to close mm-hmm. out the last 20 minutes or 30 minutes of a run. Sometimes I'll even extend it to 45 depending on where we're at in a cycle. But yeah. that 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 was just a a complete game changer for the way my athletes perform now because I had a lot of the physiological boxes checked off. Um mm-hmm. but I was they were failing late in races and you know some of that is physiological. I do know we weren't doing enough 20 plus mile runs and I kind of changed that too, but talk a little mm-hmm. bit about how you how you came up with the idea of a fast finish or a close and sort of how that nuance of the physical and the mental sort of fall in sort of in one piece to having a workout that in my opinion, like a, like a desert Island workout, man, this is one you've got to have in your cycle or you're in deep trouble.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Well, I mean, coach has been doing it for years, right. And several that were influential on me, you know, had their athletes doing it and you talk to athletes about it. And I started sort of doing it with the first pro group, it was sort of part of the programming. And you started to see like how an athlete ran a fast finish or this sort of closing, you know, part that's fast, how they ran that and how did that correlate with the race? And so what I, you know, found, which is no no surprise and coaches have known this who trained athletes for years was that the ones who really would push themselves harder in that last 10, 15, 20 minutes uh, and began to look forward to pushing themselves harder and almost it's almost like a game to them of how fast can they run the last bit? How much can they suffer at the end? Those are the ones better able to tolerate the races. And so again, it kind of goes back to this is what you're going to experience in the race. So we better have some doses of it through the training process so that it isn't that uncomfortable. And you knew when you got an athlete who could run faster at the end than they had before and they were sort of excited to do it, they sort of were excited about the challenge of it, then that was a really good sign that they were ready to go. And Brett Gocher, you know, he was one of the athletes I coach. He ran 210 in the marathon. And we would do those up here. We're at 7,000 feet. And, you know, he'd he would he'd be on the ground at the end. They just laying down trying <laughs> to recover. And you know that they just got a really big mental stress during that. And it doesn't last forever, right? Like you say, it's just the last few minutes of the run there, but that really helps them in the race. So I found it it wasn't You know, the physiology is one thing, but the mental part is just so important. And you mentioned it, that these athletes who have really long and really great careers like Meb and Dina and Desi and I think Shalane and, you know, some of those, they just just have this mental component that seems to be slightly different and they're okay with the ebb and flow of training and racing. And they certainly look forward to the challenge in each race and seeing if they can meet it.
0: You also talked about race-specific workouts. Give us some examples from maybe one from the marathon, one from the half marathon of race-specific workouts, whether they be within a long run or during the week, that really help people dial into preparing for their goal.
2: I think for both the half and the marathon, that fast finish or closer idea that Steve was talking about, are, are like you say, those are... You gotta have those and you gotta nail those, but you gotta be prepared to nail those. So you've got to do some prep work to get ready, you know, some fitness building and build up to where you can really challenge yourself. So that's certainly one. I think pace practice runs, you know, usually for the marathon, that's a continuous run at marathon pace. For the half marathon, it, it could even be multiple repetitions at marathon pace, you know, like three times three miles or something like that at their half marathon pace. So depends on the athlete obviously but doing some race specific or goal pace type workouts i think is very good but again that all has to fit into the overall philosophy of the program so typically what i'm doing is it's sort of and this goes back to arthur Lydiard, who i was lucky enough to be around his thing ultimately was do the training so you can do the training so you can finally do the training. That you need to do to achieve your goal, and so a lot of us we're not at step three; we're at step one or two. So you have to do some prep work to get ready to be able to do your best. So, for example, if you took a new runner and in the first week of their training program had them do a fast finish long run, it won't be as of as the high; it won't be as of high quality as if you do some prep work beforehand, and maybe you know four weeks or eight weeks later they do their first one, then they'll perform better in that workout. So. To me, it's about getting ready to do that race-specific training so it can be of its highest quality.
0: You mentioned Lydiard; obviously, that's a a huge inspiration for all of us coaches in the distance running world. What did he teach you?
1: Well, uh, a lot. <laughs> I don't know.
2: I mean, big question. It is a big question. Certainly, I think that his. Philosophy, which was sort of an evolution of previous philosophies, is the base that we use for our coaching philosophy. But I, and I knew a lot of that from reading his books and stuff. And then when I got together with him and spent a lot of time, that it was sort of reinforcing the things that I'd learned from the books. But the, what I ultimately, and and everybody needs to read, all coaches should read the books, right? Uh, And kind of get that. But I would say that what was most interesting was that, number one, he would give a slightly different answer to what appeared to be the same question to two different runners who appeared to be the same. And that's where I started to see he was listening for some cue that that runner was talking about to provide them with what they were missing. And again, going back to this individual nature, because Lydiard's always talked about in a very sort of rigid way right you have to do this you have to do this and I found that wasn't the case he had a lot of wiggle room within these general principles so that really reinforced that idea to me I also he's he's kind of like v Joe v Hill Th- these are guys that just are so motivating to you you would just run through a brick wall for them I don't know what it was about him but he just had that thing and so you realize that He probably could have had any training system and he still would have had successful athletes because he was just so motivating. And it showed that as a coach, and I mentioned it before, if you can become a trusted partner who is able to motivate and influence somebody to believe that they can do something, you know, bigger than maybe they believe, that was a big part of it too. So I would say you know what was great about it was it sort of reinforced what i'd learned from the books uh and talking to other people who were who had been around him but then what was neat was just sort of teasing out this differences with different people and um motivation and and i mean what what an honor it was i mean steve you saw him during that trip when he was in texas it was just fantastic
1: yeah you got to spend the i got to meet him at the i guess it was literally a week or two weeks prior to his passing. Um, Yeah. And uh, he was as, I was absolutely shocking to me that he passed because he was vivacious, excited, able to roll with the punches, able to answer any questions we had. But I noticed that too. And this, the little window I had to have to talk to him is how he talked in generalities, but it felt like it was very specific to individuals. And the more you got to ask him a specific question, he gravitated towards that. He gave an irascible sort of non, non sequitur answer to the general group but he would be willing to share much more freely about it in individual context which as you say that's like what the what real what magical coaches can do i had an opportunity to run and train with joe vial for um a number of months and that was an absolute game changer for me as well just as you said you would anybody would do anything for that man he has the ability to pull up magic out of people um you know, you. Since That's you,
2: why I always struggled as a coach because I'd been around those guys, and I was just <laughs> like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can, you know, be that person or not. They were just so exceptional, and what an honor to be around those guys
1: for sure. And such different ways of doing it, because you know, even though they both, even Coach Viele was so in, was very much influenced by Lyndiard, but he didn't do it himself. He was a he fo- was an old football coach, right, and an yeah. old football player, and and. You know, Lydiard had started his running career much later, as he was an adult, um, just trying to get himself fitter and get into a fitness position. And here, yeah, I agree with you. When i when I would sit with when I got the opportunity to sit with Coach Hill, I was always very intimidated. But the good thing about Coach it always made you realize you were an n of one. You were just this one person who he wanted to share with. Coach yeah. Vihil is just that way. I could go.
2: Yeah, it's great. And, you know, like Lydiard, he came through that era where guys didn't share their training very much. Igloy and those guys, right? I mean, there's no good history on those guys because they, you know, it was all secretive. And V Hill and certainly Lydiard, I'll tell you what I do. <laughs> Here's exactly what I do. <laughs> good luck. Uh, they don't, you know, they, they're they just sharing that way. It's wonderful.
0: Well, the good coaches have the ability to look into their runner's soul and tell them what they need to hear in that moment <laughs> to get them to believe, right? Because, sometimes as much about believing in what you're doing as it is about what you're actually doing. Yeah. So how does that play out of that kind of concept play out in your training and your coaching with athletes?
2: Well, ultimately that's the, the bottom line is between the years and do they believe, can you get them motivated, excited and believe enough uh, into what they can do? And it comes in different forms, right? I mean, you have the, Sort of objective stuff of the paces they can hit or the times they've run in tune-up races, and we have that component. But you also have the component of just learning how to motivate the athlete or what you know will motivate the athlete. Do you need to pat them on the back a lot? Do you need to kick them in the pants a lot? It kind of depends on the athlete sometimes. All of that ultimately getting them to and and some you know what's interesting in running is. There's so much worry and anxiety about, will I achieve when they go into races? And so sometimes the coach ultimately just serves as the vessel that sits there and says, yes, you can do that. And that's just the, that's just the reinforcement the athlete needs uh, because they are just worried about it. But if they know somebody else believes they can do it, then that often will help.
1: Don't tell the American Psychiatry Society or whatever it is that we are actually... Therapists, right? We'll all get we'll all get in big, big trouble for that. <laughs> um, so we're going to wrap this up with one question. We're about to announce a a a, a book club that we're sort of going to be pushing over the next couple of months, um, which is an online book club called the Endorphin Book Club. And in that regard, I wanted to ask you a question about maybe key running books or even books that are not running specific that might. That our, li- that our listeners might get something out of or might glean something from um, to help them raise their running game? Do you have any, any one or two or three books that you might recommend?
2: Yeah, I think, I think any of Lydiard's stuff uh, is really good to read. And then I think it's good to read Jack Daniel's book um, because it does a nice job of bringing in the science component of it. And then I would say Jerry Lynch, I really like his work. He did The Total Runner, which is out of print now, but uh, he does a lot of the psychological stuff, which I think um, is really good too. And then some of the current things, uh, Matt Fitzgerald has some good books. um, And those kind of guys that are a little bit newer are often doing a good job of Sort of consolidating the information from older references uh, in the past. Steve Magnus, some of those guys, you know, they're kind of they're doing the synopsis, they're doing the research work to then pull it together. I think that David Martin and Peter Coe's book, Better Training for Distance Runners, it's pretty heavy on the science side of things, but I think it's chapter three or chapter four that talks about ultimately building the training. And I was lucky to be around. David Martin quite a bit and he um he really had a good handle on the physiology and the psychology too. So I think those would be cornerstone books for sure. V Hills book is really good uh, as well. Again, I could probably just keep going and going on the books that I the way I did it to be honest was I just went to used bookstores and I bought all the old books and I read those and then I would move to the newer books. Because a lot of times it's good to kind of know what it what comes from where. And uh, you can learn to, you know, kind of have your decoder ring. So you're like, oh, well, Lydiard's calling it a three-quarter effort run. And then, you know, this guy's calling it a steady state run. And this guy's saying this is like marathon pace run. And, you know, so you could start kind of decoding things.
0: And, of course... Got to put you only faster on the list. (laughs) For sure.
2: Well, Well, hopefully, that's a little bit of a a user friendly, you know, like a workbook is how it was really designed to be. So, hopefully, it it serves that purpose.
0: Yeah. And it does a good job, I think, of helping runners tailor their training to their individual strengths and weaknesses. So, yeah. Another good one to mention for sure. Well, of course, thank you, Greg, for joining us. It's been awesome. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. I, I love Rogue. I appreciate all that you guys have done. It's amazing and, um, you know, really inspiring.
0: The next time we're in the same city like Boston, we need to get together and, and have a meeting of the minds or something like that. <laughs> or, just few, or
2: just a few beers. Anytime.
0: Well, thank you, sir. And of course, everybody, check out Greg's book, You Only Faster, and his website, mcmillanrunning.com. For the Great Big Million Calculator, as well as much, much more in terms of knowledge on training and articles and everything under the sun, running training. So, thank you, Greg, for joining us. We'll talk to you soon.
2: You bet. You guys take care.
0: That was an awesome interview with Greg, as you said in our intro, Steve. Is a little bit just reinforcing of everything we talk about, and no, it's no coincidence that Greg is one of our influences as coaches and you've had more direct exposure to him, but obviously we've both stolen liberally from his programming and his philosophy. So it's always good to get that from the, the the mouth of the man himself, but really cool. Also really cool for me to see just a little bit like Alex Hutchinson, the evolution from thinking about only the science to also recognizing that the mental component is such a big part of it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, uh, one of the things about Greg that I've appreciated so much is his steady hand and he just stays as consistent as consistent can be. And it's, uh, he's moved from, you know, an elite group to not having an elite group to having an elite group to not having an elite group. And now he's a goddamn entrepreneur to end to, I mean, like he's killing it from a, from a coaching standpoint and they've got it dialed in and they know what they're doing. It's just as a, as a friend, I'm, I'm so happy for him, and you know, I, I'm surprised it took us this long to get him on the podcast. Mostly because we were, I think we were just, I don't know why, but he just reinforced ninety-five to ninety-nine point nine percent of what we talk about week in, week out here. And guys, if you don't know the fundamentals of training, are are not that different. Everything is just keep doing the work, keep doing the work. Miles matter listen to your body. I mean, he just went through, believe he just went through all the key points. I mean, it's, you know, it's good stuff. Good stuff. There you go. We'll wrap it with that. This has been episode
0: 75 of the running rogue podcast. As always, check us out at Roguerunning.com or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at, at rogue running until next time. We'll talk to you soon.